0: When we think of stolen messages during World War II, we think of the ways they aided the Allied cause. Many movies portray history this way. I think about, oh, what's that movie with Benedict Cumberbatch again? Oh yeah, The the Imitation Game. This movie highlighted the British effort to intercept Nazi messages. It was an endeavor that was particularly helpful in the Battle of the Atlantic. Of course, America had its own intelligence services working in high gear. In 1941, America was able to steal many Japanese messages. Many of these had to do with negotiations with Japan. In a counterintuitive turn of fate, these stolen messages might have actually helped to bring about war, as opposed to aiding in the cause of ending it, the latter being the way we usually remember intelligence operations. In November of 1941, Japanese Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo sent a dispatch to Washington, D.C. American intelligence was able to steal it. Togo was sending Japanese diplomat Kichisaburo Nomura plans A and B. Remember, as we discussed in the last episode, these were negotiating points that Japanese officials had worked out back home. Little did Togo know when he wired the message that the Americans would be reading it. American Secretary of State Cordell Hull was among the first to see the stolen document. He was alarmed. What he read was startling for the hope of successful diplomacy. Remember, the Americans and the Japanese were in the midst of heated negotiations. For the few months prior to this, the two countries had been growing in distrust of one another. America wanted Japan to show its commitment to peace in East Asia. Japan had invaded China and taken over Indochina which alarmed the United States. Meanwhile, Japan hoped America would understand why it had been so aggressive. They needed to be self-sufficient, which required more natural resources. Japan wanted America's respect, or at least to not interfere. As Hull read the stolen document, he was concerned. The very first words of Togo's directive to Nomura read, quote, well, the relations between Japan and the United States have reached the edge, and our people are losing confidence in the possibility of ever adjusting them. End quote. Had Japanese officials lost hope of an agreement? These words seem to have indicated as much. There was something major, however, that Hull was not aware of. American intelligence officials had not translated the stolen document correctly. It had actually said, quote, strenuous efforts are being made day and night to adjust Japanese-American relations, which are on the verge of rupture, end quote. This seemed to say that Japanese and American negotiations were in a very precarious position. A true statement. Togo had not said, however, that Japanese officials were abandoning diplomacy. The truth is, though, Hull didn't know this. It was the fault of a mistranslation. And this was just the beginning sentence there were many more mistranslations in this document alone. Welcome to the points of no return in history. My name is Dave Knoll. On today's episode, we will explore the last stages of negotiation between America and Japan before Pearl Harbor. Mistranslations wouldn't cause the breakdown in negotiations, but they sure inflamed the country's differences. There were many mistranslations in the stolen document that Hull read. As we saw in the opening example, the American translators made Japan look bad by making it seem they were being reckless with diplomacy and reckless in their relationship with the United States. For example, Togo wrote the following, quote, the imperial government continues the negotiations after thorough deliberations. This, however, is how it was translated, quote, We have decided as a result of these deliberations to gamble once more on the continuance of the parleys. Notice the word gamble. Doesn't this word choice lessen Japan's credibility? To take another example, Togo wrote the following in reference to the negotiation instructions he was sending to Washington And the security of the empire depends on it. This is how it was translated. In fact, we gambled the fate of our land on the throw of this die." Notice the word "gambled" again, and the phrase "throw of this die." These feel like pretty substantial mistakes to me that make the Japanese seem reckless. These are just a couple of the examples of the mistranslations from this document. There were others, big ones, in fact. Had the Americans intentionally made misleading translations? this question lingered in Japan. Historian John Toland, however, doubts it was intentional, citing a lack of evidence. He says the chances are that the American translators had just done a poor job. Regardless of whether it was intentional or not, the mistranslations had made things worse between the Americans and the Japanese. American Secretary of State Hull already distrusted the Japanese. This would only serve to confirm that feeling. And when Hull saw Japanese diplomats in person about proposals A and B, things would not get any better. This was true even as Japan sent more help to Washington to try to smooth things over. These mistranslations contributed to Hull's distrust of the Japanese diplomats. Saburo Kurusu was a Japanese diplomat. In November of 1941, he was given a difficult assignment to find a solution to the ever more difficult impasse with the United States. Japanese officials sent him to America to do this. He would assist fellow diplomat Kichisaburo Nomura, who was already in Washington, D.C. Nomura had been negotiating with American Secretary of State Cordell Hull for months, and he needed help. Karusu had a background in negotiation and would help Nomura, who was growing tired in D.C., Kurusu was strongly motivated to find a way for there to be peace. This was because he had an American wife. Unfortunately, however, he didn't have much time. There was only two weeks until Japan's self-imposed diplomacy deadline. If there wasn't an agreement by then, Japan would use military means to resolve the dispute with America. Kurusu would join a struggling Nomura. Just that month, that is, November of 1941, Nomura had been trying to negotiate with Hull, but it wasn't going well. He went to Hull's apartment on November 7th. He gave Hull Japan's Plan A. As a quick reminder, Plan A was a negotiating proposal with stricter provisions than the second proposal Japanese officials had approved, that is, Plan B. Hull had seen Plan A before Nomura handed it to him. U.S. intelligence operations had intercepted it. Hull said he would take a look. But internally, he had already made up his mind. He wasn't impressed by it. Nomura sensed this in Hull and requested to see President Roosevelt. Maybe he can make more headway with him. In any case, he needed something to happen because Japanese officials kept pushing him to work fast. While the Roosevelt meeting did not progress talks much further, Nomura would soon have help. Kurusu made it to Washington. The two diplomats would be busy. They soon saw Hull then they saw Roosevelt. Still, despite these meetings, the Roosevelt administration did not provide a response to Japan's Plan A. They were being patient, not trying to antagonize a disagreement that might lead to war. The Japanese diplomats, meanwhile, were becoming more and more desperate, and they proposed Plan B to Hull. Remember, Plan B was the less strict proposal Japanese officials had approved, with a promise to leave southern Indochina. Hull wasn't impressed. Even the concessions in this plan had failed to move the needle for the Americans. There were a number of reasons for this. The fact that Hull did not see the Japanese as acting in good faith, a view that was made worse by the mistranslations we covered in the previous section, and the fact that, when it came down to it, the Americans and the Japanese were very far apart on a number of basic issues such as trade and the Japanese presence in China. This brings us to November 24th through the 26th, which are, perhaps, the most important dates of this story. It is during these three days that negotiations completely fell apart. On the 24th, Hull met with agents from countries that had an interest in the dealings between Japan and the U.S. This included China, Britain, the Netherlands, and Australia. Hull showed them a document originally from President Roosevelt that has been called a modus vivendi. This Latin phrase translates to, quote, way of living. In this context, the phrase meant something along the lines of a way in which two countries that are at odds with one another live together harmoniously. The document, which Roosevelt originally drafted in response to Japan's Plan B, and had since been updated by Hull, included concessions from both America and Japan. Among the notable responses, China protested the document. They felt it conceded too much. Remember, China was in the middle of a war with Japan. Then we get to the 25th. That night, Secretary of State Cordell Hull was considering something that would have made Japanese diplomats Nomura and Kurusu very happy. He thought that he might actually hand over the modus vivendi. He was revising it with significant concessions, including a move towards a normalization of the two countries' economic relationship. In America's thinking, this would happen if Japan followed through on its offer to start to pull back from Indochina. However, Hull changed his mind. He decided to refrain from handing over the modus vivendi. Why did Hull decide this? Let's take a look at a couple of things that help explain it. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill had messaged FDR to offer his concern over America making concessions to Japan and thus hurting China in its war against Japan. The British, like the Americans, saw China as a friend in the region. And news reached America about Japanese aggression. Their soldiers were on the move in Southeast Asia. According to historian Ari Hata, this was perhaps the main motivation for Hull and the U.S. to change course. It caused America great concern about a Japanese attack in the not-so-distant future. Rather than the modus vivendi, Hull put together what has become a famous document. The Hull Note is what it's commonly called now. In this note, Hull did not go easy on the Japanese. We'll explore it in more detail in a second when we get to the next section, but suffice it to say that Japan did not take it well. Down the road, Hull said, quote, We had no serious thought that Japan would accept our proposal, end quote. The decision to hand over the Hull Note, as opposed to the Modus Vivendi, was a major historical turning point. It was even, quite possibly, a war-deciding moment. There was indication of this following the conclusion of the Pacific War, when former Japanese Prime Minister Hideki Tojo said the modus vivendi would have very well made peace much more likely. He said, quote, I had already prepared a proposal with new compromises in it. I wanted somehow to carry out the Emperor's wishes and avoid war. End quote. However, it was too late the modus vivendi would not reach the Japanese. On November 26th, right after Roosevelt and Hull changed their mind about the modus vivendi, Nomura and Kurusu were given the Hull Note. Here are some of the note's requirements. It said that Japan must, quote, withdraw all military, naval, air, and police forces from China and Indochina, end quote. That Japan, quote, will not support militarily, politically, economically, any government or regime in China other than the national government of the Republic of China, end quote. the last being a reference to the government of Chiang Kai shek. This was a blow for the Japanese who did not trust Chiang Kai shek. They had in mind a different leader for China. The whole note also condemned Japanese involvement in the alliance with the Germans and Italians, that is, the Tripartite Pact and it called for the US and Japan to quote endeavor to conclude a multilateral non-aggression pact among the British Empire, China, Japan, the Netherlands, the Soviet Union, Thailand, and the United States. end quote. From Japan's perspective, this point was difficult to hear because it delayed a peaceful solution by bringing in many more countries to negotiations. Japan didn't have time to spare. They would either find peace soon or there would be war. The Japanese diplomats in the room with hull, that is, Nomura and Kurusu, were stunned. These requirements seemed overbearing. Even worse, they thought, there was no way that Japanese officials back home would accept them. This turned out to be right. The next day, that is, November 27th, these officials received the hull note. They had gathered for a conference in Tokyo. The note was not received well. Quote, this is an ultimatum, one official screamed. Of all the points made in the whole note, the requirement that Japan leave China caused the most outrage. This was outrageous to the Japanese officials because they thought this meant that the Americans were requiring them to leave Manchuria in addition to the ground they had gained in the China War. They interpreted the word China from the note to encompass this. As a quick reminder, Manchuria was the land just north of the Korean Peninsula the Japanese had taken it in the early 1930s as part of their initiative to expand their empire for more land and to protect their control over Korea from China or Russia. However, Hull didn't expect Japan to leave Manchuria. This was because Manchuria was not in his mind at all when he wrote the word China. This was a massive miscommunication. Would it have changed anything? As you can read from historian John Toland, some Japanese officials thought so. They said this when interviewed in 1967. One official said the whole note would have been approved if not for this miscommunication. Another official said they would have had conversations about it, rather than what actually happened when they just shut down once they saw the whole note requirements. There was also the opinion that the Japanese would not have attacked Pearl Harbor. This really got to me. Who knows if the Japanese officials are actually right, but to think of how small things, like miscommunication about the word China, added to an already complicated endeavor like world diplomacy? This really struck me. By the time Hull handed over his note to the Japanese, he was growing tired of negotiating. He said as much to Secretary of War Henry Stimson. I've, quote, washed my hands, end quote, of diplomacy, he said. Quote, it is now in the hands of you and Knox, the Army and the Navy, end quote. Frank Knox was Navy Secretary. Basically, Hull was saying the matter was moving beyond the stage of negotiation. There were a number of reasons for this, some of which we've already covered. The FDR administration had lost hope that Japanese would respond to their requirements or that Japan would lessen their own requirements of America. Japan continued to be aggressive in East Asia, and as the Roosevelt administration learned through American intelligence, Japan's deadline for diplomacy was rapidly approaching. The Japanese diplomats, meanwhile, held out a little bit of hope. The tiny bit of it that was left. It would soon be gone, however. In Washington on November 27th, the Japanese diplomats would try one more time to change FDR and Hull's minds. They met at the White House. Nomura pleaded his case. Couldn't America put forth something different from the Hull Note? It was so strict. America, of course, had made up its mind by this point this was something Roosevelt confirmed. He talked about how Japan's aggressiveness in East Asia made America very frustrated. He was worried they were going to emulate the Nazi invasion of Europe. Up to that point, Hitler had invaded Poland, France, and Russia, among other places. Despite one more attempt by Nomura to make his case, Secretary of State Cordell Hull said no. With this, for all intents and purposes, negotiations were done. Japanese officials would meet for an imperial conference on the first day of December. Japan had already determined a war with America was imminent. It was past the diplomacy cutoff. The Hull Note had really aggravated them. They felt their empire was being threatened by Hull's requirements. One official said, quote, The United States is acting in a conceited, stubborn, and disrespectful manner, end quote. All that was left was for Emperor Hirohito to officially grant the go-ahead. Hirohito still didn't want war. He later said, quote, I tried to think of everything, some way to avoid it, end quote. However, as he considered the situation, he felt there was no other option. The whole note really got to him. Hull was being demeaning towards Japan with his harsh requirements. Hirohito officially authorized the war plan. While U.S. officials didn't know that Japan had officially decided to launch an attack, they knew the country was up to something. There were rumors of an impending Japanese assault on America or her allies. Would it be the Philippines? Or somewhere else? There were many possibilities. America's response over the next week was very important. That is, the week prior to the December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor. Would they be prepared? That's the question we'll explore on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Points of No Return in history. In two weeks, we'll continue our series, Japan Attacks America and the Small Things That Led to It. I am grateful for two historians whose works I have consulted for this series. This includes John Toland's book, The Rising Sun, as well as Arihada's book, Japan 1941. For a more in-depth look at the buildup to Pearl Harbor, these are great resources. Please rate and review the show And please subscribe and share with your friends. It really helps us out. Have a great week, everyone.